Hi, all, and welcome back to Mindful Minds. Um, This is going to be a little bit of a different episode. So we have not done one of these in quite a while, but um, this is going to be a solo episode. I'm just going to chat with you guys. Um, I talked about this last week, but January, we're going to talk about deconstruction. Um, I don't know if I'm going to do themed months every single month, but deconstruction has been coming up a lot on my social media. You guys have been talking about it a ton and it seems like it is a topic that is really important to a lot of people to talk about. Um, we are going to dive into mega churches to start off. <laughs> We're going to, we'll just dive in very deep. Um, so essentially I want to give some trigger warnings right off the bat because I know what I'm going to be talking about. And then I also want to preface that this is going to be a two part episode. I've never done this before, but um, we are going to do part one dropping, obviously, today, and then part two is going to drop tomorrow at 6 a.m. PST, so um, keep a lookout for that, but essentially, I want to kind of, I'm going to give you guys a little bit of an overview as to what we're going to talk about, and then we can go into some of the trigger warnings first. So if you've seen the title, um, today's episode is titled Mega Church's Healing Gold Dust and Gucci which yes, I know that's a little bit of an extra title, but whatever. Um, and so essentially in this episode, I want to talk about some of the the healing aspects and the prosperity gospel. Um, we're going to get into some of the ableism of that. We're also going to get into some of the shame that comes with healing culture and miracle culture. Um, we're also going to talk about a specific mega church and the death of a child. So trigger warning on that. Um, We're also going to talk about gold dust and kind of how easily manufactured some quote unquote miracles are. Um, And then we're going to talk about the capitalism of it all. We're going to get into that a tiny bit. We'll get into it more tomorrow. Um, But I'm going to go into, I guess, kind of the like general mega church vibes. I don't want to get sued, so I'm not going to name mega churches. I will allude to mega churches um, or talk about them without disclosing who they are um, because I just want to be careful about naming them. Um, all of these stories that I'm going to talk about are alleged, so I want to make that clear as well. Um, and then I think with the prosperity gospel aspect, um, I also want to get into some of the kind of, I don't know, the, the, the mega church aspects that also bleed into the purity culture. And we're going to have an episode later this month about purity culture. So we'll dive into it really deep later this month. Um, but I do want to get into just some of that. So obviously trigger warning with religious trauma, um, healings, ableism, um, racism, colonialism. We're also going to talk about the sexism of it all a little bit. Um, like I mentioned earlier, we're going to talk about the death of a child and a, um, failed resurrection attempt, which is a pretty gruesome story. So be aware of that. Um, and then tomorrow's episode is going to be titled mega churches, conferences, cults, and controversy. Um, I went for the alliteration there. So tomorrow we're going to get into more of the capitalism with the conferences. Um, we're going to talk about how some of these mega churches, um, there's kind of like a core four. And so we're going to kind of talk about, um, that core four and how they get into 
these huge, 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 like tours and concerts and conferences. And they basically sell Christianity in this little tied up package that is super aesthetically pleasing. Um, and why that is harmful. Then we're also going to talk about some of the cult-like aspects. Um, I want to be really careful about that because cult is a word that gets tossed around a lot nowadays. And obviously there are definitely some things that like, you know, classify something as a cult. So I want to make sure that I'm not just tossing that around for fun, but there are a lot of similarities between charismatic modern evangelical Christianity in Western societies and a lot of cults that also happen in Western societies. So I want to make sure that we address that. And then we're going to get into some of the controversies. We're going to get into some of the adultery, some of the, um, the far right agendas, some of all that shit that has just gone so far off the handles in the last five years. Um, and so well, let's just get into it. Um, obviously if you are in a space where this is a conversation that feels not safe or comfortable for you, please don't feel pressured whatsoever to, to stay and to be involved. Um, we're going to have an episode later this month about purity culture, like I mentioned, and then, uh, coming up in February, we will be back to like regular, regularly scheduled programming with just kind of normal episode drops biweekly. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of your, you're down low on these two episodes. Like I said, this is the first time I've ever doing something like this where I'm dropping two episodes back to back. Um, let me know how you feel about it. But for now, let's just, let's hop in. So to start off, what is a megachurch? Um, what does it mean? What, what are we looking at? What qualifies a megachurch as a megachurch? What numbers does it have to have to be qualified? Um, so I'm going to start with this article. It is called what is a mega church by it's, it's by Alan Kim and it is on CNN. Um, so first off, they say that you need at least 2000 consistent congregants. Um, so they say in this, uh, article quote, the Hartford Institute for religious research defines a mega church as a Protestant congregation that has an average weekly attendance of 2000 or more members in its worship services. Um, so there's that. And then it also clarifies that most are evangelical, which are the ones we're going to be talking about today. Also, it's important to note that a lot of mega churches are non-denominational. Um, we're going to kind of get into this a little bit, um, but basically non-denominational means that you are not answering to a denomination. Denominations are basically organizations and they have... Um, certain doctrine that they follow. They often have rules. There's often like levels of accountability. Um, there are ministry networks that will hold the churches accountable financially and also from like an HR perspective. Um, and a lot of mega churches are non-denominational. And I think a lot of people assume that non-denominational means like cool and progressive. That is not what that means. Um, it can mean that, but it does not have to mean that. Um, and what I mean by that is non-denominational just basically means that they're, you're not restricted by a certain denomination, right? And so the thing that's a hiccup about that is, yes, it can definitely go in the progressive direction. That can mean that you don't feel comfortable. Your church does not feel like any of the current existing denominations align with their ethical values from a... Um, you know, more liberal point of view. That's definitely a possibility. 
However, the other possibility um, is that you have a lack of accountability. You have a lack of, um, honestly, like a lack of theology. You can kind of just preach a little bit of whatever you want to preach. Um, and I personally, and I'm speaking just from personal experience, um, there's a huge focus on like individualism and it basically, um, I think it, I think it can go too far to the point where there are churches who use the non-denominational title as a pole, but in reality, they haven't set up accountability. They haven't set up boards. They haven't set up hierarchies to the point where, you have pastors with really big congregations who are basically answering to no one. Um, and that obviously there, I don't need to explain why that can be problematic. So that's a thing to clarify. Um, this CNN article also clarifies that the U S does not have a monopoly on mega churches. Um, obviously, uh, Hillsong is not in the U S um, so there's that. And then they they note that the arguably most famous megachurch in the U.S. is Joel Osteen's Lakewood Church, which is based in Houston, Texas. And then they also talk about the fact that there are other really large megachurches in other countries, that this is not just a U.S. thing. And then we talk about the money, right? So <laughs> basically, they make a lot of money. It's it is it is a capitalistic machine. Um, this uh, this article says, according to the Hartford Institute's 2015 survey, the median income for these houses of worship in 2014 was 4.7 million dollars. Quote, and that kind of balance sheet has drawn scrutiny. Um, it mentions that Pastor John Gray of Relentless Church in Greenville, South Carolina, came under fire in 2018 for buying his wife a 200,000 Lamborghini SUV, while Pastor Stephen Furtick of North Carolina, which for those of you who don't know, that's Elevation Church, caught criticism for buying a $1.7 million home. So, <laughs> um, end quote. Uh, yeah, so I don't need to explain that. That's self-explanatory, right? So they make a lot of money. There are most of them are evangelical, and they have at least two thousand consistent congregants. So that those are kind of the the requirements to be classified as a megachurch. Now, um, now that we've done, we've clarified that. Um, I I will rattle off kind of a list of megachurches that are established. If you're kind of curious for examples, and like we already clarified. Uh, mega churches are not just a U.S. thing, right? So, you know, don't don't think that that's the only thing that we're referencing. But I am just going to kind of bring up a few that are um, big, big, big ones. Um, so we have uh, Church of the Highlands in Birmingham, Alabama, with 52,000 average weekly attendance, um, which that's so insane to me. Um, we've got Elevation Church in Charlotte, North Carolina with 26,000 of a weekly attendance. Um, we have Gateway Church in South Lake, Texas with about 100,000 in weekly attendance that I did not know that the numbers were that high. Um, Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas with about 45,000. Life Church in Edmond, Oklahoma with about 72,500 weekly attendance. Um, let's see, what else do we got? We've got, I'm looking at like a master doc on Wikipedia for those of you who are curious and want to look into your own 
Um, we've got Saddleback and Lake Forest with 22,000. Um, we've got, let's see. What else? I'm trying to do some that are a little bit. Oh, we've got Mars Hill. Mars Hill has taken a little bit of a nosedive in their attendance, but uh, that's in Granville, Michigan, and they've got 10,000. And then obviously we've got a lot more that are are smaller, um, still extremely significant. I mean, the fact that we're calling 10,000 small is is wild. Um, and so you've got you've got that kind of a vibe. And then I think the the other um, thing that's kind of interesting to note is that some of these mega pastors who are very, 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 very popular on social media don't necessarily have the biggest followings. So, you know, we're thinking of, um, obviously Stephen Furtick, we're thinking of, um, let's see, like Chris Durso, you've got, um, Chad Veach, you've got, um, I'm forgetting one. Oh, Judah Smith. Um, and they don't necessarily have these like staggering hundred thousand, um, you know, attendants, even like Greg Laurie's church only has 15,000. John MacArthur has 9,000. Um, so sometimes some, you know, they're, they're not quite as big as you'd think, but they're huge. (laughs) Um, TD Jakes has 16,000. John Gray has 14,000. And so when you put that into perspective where John Gray was able to buy a $200,000 Lamborghini and he's got 14,000 weekly average attendance, and then you have someone who has 50,000 or 100,000 or 75,000, it's, it gets to levels that are quite astronomical. Um, and a lot, I will clarify though, that some of these audiences are online. Those ones that we're talking about with a lot bigger, bigger attendance are either multi-campuses where there are multi-loca- multiple locations or there are multiple locations plus online services. So it, it is over reach of a, a lot of people, not just in one building. So I want to clarify that as well. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of where we're starting with just talking about who, what are we looking at here, Right. I want to clarify that what I'm going to speak about is not directed at any of the mega churches specifically that I just listed, nor is it directed at any of the senior pastors that I just listed. I want to make that abundantly clear. Um, But I'm just going to speak about my personal experience through mega churches, what I have seen through the research that I've done, what I've seen through being involved in a mega church, um, and just kind of give some some outlines. Um, So let's start with what, you know, charismatic churches. So what is a charismatic church? So um, a charismatic church is defined as a church that emphasizes communal prayer and the charismatic gifts of speaking in tongues, healing, etc. Those are often basically just churches that look at modern day miracles as a part of something that you can do in this in this time, right? So whether that's resurrection, whether that is healing, whether that is, um, you know, turning water into wine, whether that is um, gold dust coming from the ceilings, um, there are a lot of different variations, right? But we're talking about people who believe that you can still do essentially the things that Jesus did and the things that the disciples did. Um, that's, that's kind of, that's, that's the vibe. Okay. So that's what we're looking at. 
Um, so I want to talk about charismatic churches, and there is often a crossover between charismatic churches and prosperity prosperity theology. So Wikipedia describes prosperity theology as a religious belief among some Protestant Christians that financial blessing and physical well-being are always the will of God for them, and that faith, positive speech, and donations to religious causes will increase one's material wealth. Um, it is also known as health-wealth gospel the gospel of success or seed faith. Um, so let's, let's dive in. We'll, we'll dive into prosperity gospel first and we can kind of touch into charismatic. Um, so I, I don't really think we can talk about healings without talking about prosperity gospel. The reason for that is because a lot of these churches that try to perform healings, um, they, they look at it like, like this just mentioned that healing is all is God's will. It's always God's will. Okay. And so what we're looking at when we say that is let's say that you have a kiddo who has cancer. And, um, once again, it's saying that you can be healed. It is always God's will to be healed. And through faith, positive speech and donations to, uh, religious causes, you can increase your wealth and you can also like access that healing. Right. And so that's why it's often, you know, shorthanded as health, wealth, gospel. And so what happens when you are preaching that type of theology is you are telling people that if you have enough faith, you will be healed because it is always God's will and that it is also God's will for you to prosper. And so if you do not have that faith and you are sick, it's because you did not have the faith. It is not because the world is awful and bad things happen. Okay. So it automatically places the responsibility on to the individual that you have to have enough faith to access that healing, or you have to have enough faith to access that wealth. And so if you have someone who has a chronic illness, um, or who is disabled or who gets sick, um, that then points the finger at that person and says, you are not good enough. This is why you are sick. This is why you are disabled. This is why you are chronically ill, et cetera, et cetera. And then on the wealth side of that, you're looking at people who are experiencing poverty or living in low income situations. And you're saying, if you had enough faith, you would not be in this situation because, you know, your faith dictates your wealth. And so that's kind of that's the blunt version. You're not going to find a lot of churches who say it that directly because it sounds pretty shitty when you say it that directly. And it sounds pretty awful. Um, but when you put that theology into practice, that's what that theology is saying. So, um, the, here's the hiccups with that, right? So let's, let's start with the healings. Um, there's a few things that can happen. Obviously there can be a lot of shame placed on the individual, and a lot of um, guilt for not having enough faith. Um, it, it like like I said, it just it places all of the responsibility on the individual. So there can be a, a huge shame complex. There can also be um, a really significant shame complex in the community, where if someone gets sick, there's kind of this awareness that it's because they didn't have enough faith. Um, simultaneously, you can have healings or miracles try to be performed. So let's say that. Um, you know, Jimmy has a, um, I don't know, has 
cerebral palsy or something that um, impacts his ability to walk. Okay. Let's say that Jimmy goes up on stage and let's say that um, the pastor tries to heal Jimmy. Um, It can put a lot of pressure on the individual who is going to, you know, who's they're trying to heal to push themselves to a point of pain um, to try and prove that they have enough faith. And I think that this all comes from a root of really significant ableism. Um, I had Claire of Living with Clarity back on the podcast, like in, I don't know, I think it was like episode 20 or something like that. Um, and we talked about the fact that there's kind of this outdated notion that in order to be disabled, you have to be like paralyzed. You cannot move. And that's not realistic. And so I think the thing that can happen is in these circles where you send somebody up on stage and you try to heal them, essentially, let's say that they can move their legs or let's say that they can walk a little bit, but when they do walk, it invokes some serious chronic pain. It can push that person to put themselves in pain to prove to the audience and the church and the community and the pastor that they have enough faith because how embarrassing is it to be up on stage and have a doctrine at the center and the core of your church that says, if you have enough faith, you will be healed and you get put on the spot like that. And the church is trying to heal you and you all of a sudden you're not healed and you can't walk. It's, it's fucking embarrassing. And there's a lot of shame in that. And so I think it pushes people. And when I say, I think, I mean, I know I've watched this happen where people have been forced into situations to try to put themselves in pain to prove that they have enough faith to be healed. So there's that, that can happen. The other thing that can happen is let's say that a a head pastor gets sick. Then you're forced to confront your theology, right? Because if a head pastor gets sick, well, does the head pastor not have enough faith? And when you look at this from this perspective, you see how absolutely absurd and silly it is because your faith is not dictating your sickness or whether or not you, you develop cancer or whether or not you develop, um, some sort of ailment that means you have to get a shoulder replacement. Like it's such a silly thing to try to act like that's all based on faith. It's just so ridiculous to me. Um, it's very silly. And, and I will also clarify that healings and, and miracles churches that try to perform healings and miracles don't always happen within the prosperity gospel space. So there's also churches that don't believe in the prosperity gospel that also try to perform miracles and healings. And so there's kind of, it's the, it's the double-edged sword where I think it is double the harm when you are in a prosperity gospel space that tries to perform healings, because essentially you're putting pressure on people to act like they're healed. And then you're also, um, putting pressure on, um, you're putting pressure on people to be healed and you're also putting pressure on the fact that it's their faith that heals them. So it's double the harm, but it's also, it's incredibly harmful without the prosperity gospel aspect to try to heal anybody. It's, it's just, it's very harmful and it's, it's very, um, it's very pressure filled. It's very coercive. It's very abusive. Um, and it's peer pressure to the absolute finest degree. Right. Um, and so there's that type of, of, of issue where you can, you have to confront your faith really quick when the pastor gets sick. If you're in a prosperity gospel space, the other thing that can happen is it places the church members and it teaches children. So let's say you're a child that grows up in this environment where you're taught that you can heal and you can perform miracles. If you have enough faith, 
it teaches people from a really young age and then breeds uh, teenagers and adults into people that think that the ultimate goal in life is to be healed. And here's the thing that that happens when you do that. For one, it's so incredibly ableist in nature because you are telling anybody who has any type of disability, um, you're meant to be better than this. That's what you're telling people. Um, And the thing that's so harmful about that is I think that the world has done a horrible job with um, being so incredibly ableist in such an oppressive space for disabled people that um, it's really incredibly harmful to then look at people and say, hey, guys, <laughs> um, you, ha- you, you need to be healed. That's, that's, that's your perfect form. So that's obviously a problem, right? The other thing that it does is it puts church members in a superior position because what you're saying to people is your ultimate form is to be healed, and I am better than you. I have more faith than you. I know more about your situation than you and I can fix you. And so there, it creates this really awful superiority complex and it creates this God complex, which we've talked about so many times on the podcast that evangelical Christianity just breeds God complexes. Um, and then if we go to the resurrection piece, Um, I've spoken about this before on my TikTok, but essentially there was a really big, um, I mean, I can name them because it's all over the internet, but basically there's a church called Bethel Church in Redding, California. There was a situation where one of their lead worship leaders, um, her daughter passed away and she was very young. She was two years old. Um, I don't know the logistics of how she passed, but she passed away and the church did not accept that. And um, essentially led a, I want to say it was five or six days, um, of praying and rallying and did this hashtag of like bring back and then the child's name and essentially did this whole campaign to, um, resurrect this child. Now, in my opinion, I'll clarify, this is only my opinion. Um, I think that's super abusive and I think that's super harmful. Um, mainly because you're taking a grieving mother, you're putting her on stage to lead worship and you're not letting her grieve and you're not letting her process. And I think that from a prosperity gospel perspective, you're putting it on this grieving mother that she has to have enough faith to bring her child back. And that is so brutally traumatic and so brutally coercive and abusive. It's so upsetting. And you guessed it, the child did not come back. They did not resurrect this child. And so then you really have to confront your theology and you have to confront, are we now saying that this worship leader didn't have enough faith? Which if you're, obviously that's not what happened, right? This was an unfortunate situation. A little child passed away that has nothing to do with this mother's faith level. Nothing. That is not her fault. And it puts shame on this mother. It puts um, it puts pressure on her. It, it's just overall a really, really awful situation, right? And then the other thing is with these healings, they're also really easy to be faked. Obviously not resurrections, but there is a um, really common miracle where um, 
someone's leg grows, quote unquote. If you've ever grown up in any charismatic churches that performed healings, you're going to know exactly what I'm talking about. It's really common for these young, specifically young teens and college students to do these healings and say, oh yeah, I made this person's leg grow. There were, you know, they had two different legs that were different lengths. I made their leg grow. That is a real disability. That is a very real thing that can happen. However, um, it, it, it was like the only miracle that people could perform, which was a little fishy. Um, I posted about this on my TikTok and got a lot of feedback from a lot of people who went to these types of churches, went to these colleges that, you know, focus on supernatural and charismatic ministry. And basically a lot of people in the comment section clarified that there are some little magic tricks to show how you can make people's leg grow. So in fact, it is not a miracle. It's a magic trick. So there's things like that where it's obviously there, there are ways to fabricate it. Now let's dive in really quick to the wealth aspect, because if you're looking at the wealth and the idea that faith is going to bring you wealth, if you don't have enough faith, that's why you're poor. (laughs) I mean, just that alone is like so classist and upsetting, right? But then let's look at missions, right? So they send the other thing that's so popular in these, um, these churches and in all evangelical churches in, um, the U S honestly is mission work. Mission work is incredibly popular. And if you don't know what mission work is, um, it's essentially the idea that you send, um, church members to a different area. It doesn't have to be international, but it often is. And you send them to play with the children and to build houses and to do community work. And, it's kind of packaged as this super beautiful thing. Um, we don't have time to get into it right now about how um, harmful it is. I've talked about it briefly before about the white saviorism of it. Um, I am going to have an episode come out later this year about adoption. And um, we have the wonderful Ellie Coburn coming on for that episode. So um, we are going to talk about we talk about white saviorism a little bit in that episode, but basically there's just kind of the idea that you're saving these black and brown children, black and brown individuals. And and once again, God complex, savior complex, right? So let's talk about the wealth and the prosperity gospel. And then the mission aspect, you're telling these black and brown children that you're coming to visit and these black and brown families in different countries that, Hey, (laughs) I've got money. And that means I have more faith than you. And essentially, that means I'm better than you. And obviously, they're not saying this directly. But if you really dive into the theology, that's what the theology is communicating. And obviously, that's so wildly problematic. It also, once again, places the responsibility of wealth and then vice versa, the responsibility of poverty on the individual, where if you do any research into systemic issues in any country, that has a serious poverty issue, you're going to understand very quickly that it is not on the individual, it's on the system. Um, And so it's just placing a lot of individual responsibility on people that should not have that responsibility. They do not deserve the burden of that responsibility. They do not deserve to have that put on them, that you are poor because you don't have faith, when in reality it's because a system has neglected and oppressed them. And so that's problematic in itself. Um, yeah. So then let's go on to some of the other kind of 
goofy things that go on. Um, I'm talking about one church in specific or specifically, but, um, I'm not going to name them because yeah. But anyways, there are some churches that have things, um, a lot of churches actually that are charismatic that have these kind of, um, I don't know, like proof of God, um, coming in the form of gold dust or in like these supernatural occurrences. And the reason why I wanted to talk about the gold dust, um, I'm not going to get into it too much because I think it's just, it's very easily fabricated, right? If you're saying, oh, gold dust is coming out of the air ducts and that's Jesus. No, there's probably someone fucking sprinkling gold dust in the air vents. I don't think that's Jesus. I think someone went to the Dollar Tree and got fucking creative, okay? So obviously that's kind of a scam. But then I think it goes a lot deeper because I think that's a really, the, the gold dust is like a goofy example. However, that idea of the fabrication of the emotional experience and the fabrication of Jesus being present is really, 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 really prevalent in a lot of megachurches. Because a lot of the time what you see with megachurches is that they have the money and so they have the production. Um, we have seen, if you've been on deconstruction TikTok, you have seen the absurd Christian productions, or I'm sorry, Christmas productions that have been put on by these mega churches, where these are like, these are rocket level productions, y'all. Like this is intense. They've got fucking tracks in the ceiling. They've got people hoisted up in like harnesses. They've got fire and cannons. And one had a strip show, which I won't even get into, but it was horribly disturbing. Um, and I don't mean horribly disturbing because it's stripping, but I mean, it's horribly disturbing because churches will disparage sex workers and call them, you know, broken and lost and then do a funny, like sex, sexy Santa kind of strippy vibe on their stage. It's very, 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 um, contradictory. And, um, I don't think that it's fair, but anyways, you've got these really high levels of production because you have money, Right. I worked at a mega church. I volunteered at a mega church. And um, in my position, in my role, I was on like the production and the experience team. And so I was I, I was in charge of, you know, some of the cues and the props and the fog and the all the funny like little smaller versions of the gold dust, if you will, that helped create this environment that fabricated an emotional response. And it's really common with mega churches. It's also just really common within like evangelical Christianity that um there's a lot that goes into kind of fabricating these responses that you think are from the Holy Spirit or from Jesus himself. And I think there's a lot of reasons why that's problematic. I think for one it's it's deceptive. Um, and it makes people think that they're experiencing something when it's actually just a lot of carefully thought out and crafted cues and production and um, music and sound and lights and fog that make people think that they're having an emotional response. Um, another great example of that is church camps. If you've ever been to a church camp, they um, take children into, you know, whatever, the woods, wherever you're going to have your church camp, the beach. And um, you're tired. You're little. You do a ton of activities um, and you get really tired. And often for anyone, um, a lot of children get really overstimulated when they have that many activities, but specifically for neurodivergent kiddos, it gets really overwhelming and very overstimulating. You have them stay up very late. Um, you have them eat 
not necessarily the schedule that they're used to eating, not the food they're used to eating. And obviously that's just kind of how camp is, right? Kids get tired. But however, the thing about church camp is then you introduce this spiritual aspect. And specifically for church camps that are like middle and high school, you have these teenagers where then you have, um, you're inundating them with purity culture and you're indoctrinating them with these beliefs and you have them in this perfect environment where they're tired, they're overstimulated, they're hungry, they're probably a little cranky, and they're they're burnt out. And then you put on that perfect song that has that perfect chord structure, and you pump the fog out, and you have the altar call, and you flood them with emotions, and then they start crying, or they start panicking, and you say it's the Holy Spirit. And it's not they're overstimulated and they're burnt out. And I heard, I had a lot of people talk to me on TikTok about, you know, when they, some of their most traumatic experiences as a kiddo are like having a pastor walk up and like push them in the head and be like, it's the Holy Spirit. It's like, no, I'm fucking 12 years old. I'm exhausted. And you just physically knocked me over. <laughs> like, that's not the Holy Spirit. That's you being, first of all, physically, like you should not put physical there should not be any hands on me at church camp. Um, but also I'm overwhelmed and I'm overstimulated and it wasn't the Holy spirit. I just got burnt out and I had an emotional reaction that is really valid for being that tired and that burnt out and that overwhelmed and having that many stimuli thrown in your face. Um, and one of my most vivid memories as a kiddo from church camp is being in the corner. I think this was middle school church camp. And, um, from the inside out by Hillsong was playing and, um, I basically had a full ass panic attack and was rocking back and forth and remember like not being able to really breathe. And I had an adult come and like lay hands on me and like, tell me that this was what the Holy spirit felt like when in reality as an adult that now has a degree in psychology, I understand that I was having a panic attack. And the really sad thing is the adult, quote unquote, that told me that was a 18-year-old camp counselor who had grown up in the exact same environment. And so you have these like really young camp counselors that are, I was a camp counselor, like I was a camp counselor for three years for like third grade, fourth grade, and sixth grade girls. And it sucks because I know that I definitely perpetuated this type of culture. And I taught these kiddos that like, you know, them feeling overwhelmed, having panic attacks was the Holy spirit when, and I've also, like I said, I worked in production. I know the cues. And that was one of the things that started to unravel my deconstruction for me was like, I remember, um, being involved in production in college and having them say like, well, yeah, we need this at this time. Cause that's going to like really hit everybody. And I was like, Oh fuck. Is it really that fabricated? Like, do you guys really like have meetings about timing out what time to hit the fog to get the greatest emotional reaction. And then I heard that the worship team at my college had been instructed to show more emotion and to raise their arms at certain times. And that really was what like threw me through a loop was I was like, I always felt very connected to the Lord through worship and hearing that people were being instructed on like when to show emotion during the song so that they could encourage other people to have that same emotion was horrifying to me. Um, and it really kind of rocked me to my core. And it was one of the things that made me start to step away from Christianity. And then I went to a concert and I felt the same way that I felt through worship at a concert. And it was like, Oh fuck is this not Jesus? Is it just that I really like music and these songs are structured to get an emotional reaction? Um, 
And I mean, there's documentaries on these worship bands that write these songs and the process they go through. And it's, it's pretty intense. And I remember as a kid thinking that that was a really cool process and they put so much thought into it. And as an adult, it's like, oh no, this is very structured and this is very strategic. And that's concerning. Um, and that all goes back to like, like I said, the gold dust. It's, it's this idea that there are these fabricated experiences that make you think that you're experiencing Jesus when you're really just experiencing, um, really well thought out high level production. Um, and I wanted to talk about that in the megachurch episode because I think we see it most in megachurches and we see it most in these big churches. Or or the other important thing is a lot of smaller churches will model themselves after these big megachurches. Like they've seen the Hillsong services and so they model themselves after Hillsong. And so there's also that. Like even if you're not a megachurch, you might have had kind of a megachurch-esque experience because your church modeled itself after a megachurch. And so it kind of becomes this like, cancer where these churches get really popular and then it kind of spreads into all these other churches. And now you have like a, an army of churches that are all doing these like really harmful things in the name of Jesus because it's popular and it's trendy and it, 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 you know, they're often really aesthetically pleasing. They're often very Instagrammable and uh, that sells. And unfortunately Christianity is, is honestly, like from some perspectives, pretty good at marketing themselves. Um, the really intense, like far right part of Christianity, I think is really bad at marketing themselves. But if you look at those mega churches, they often don't take stands as clear on some of those like political issues, even down to like their stances on LGBTQ individuals. They will maybe like give some half-hearted answer about how, um, well, like we love everyone and you're welcome here. And then you learn that they actually have really um, harmful and discriminatory policies and that it is not a hospitable place for um, queer individuals and that it's not a safe place, but they kind of brand themselves as being safe um, because they don't really take a stance on very many things. A lot of mega churches have a very lukewarm perspective because if you're trying to reach as many people as possible and make as much money as possible, you're not going to make that money quite as well if you're um, taking really dividing stances on things. And so they tend to kind of stay in this middle ground and be this kind of like religious Switzerland, if you will. And sometimes they do take stands. There are some mega churches that have really, really, really firm stands and still are incredibly successful. But the ones that I grew up with were more lukewarm in the middle, would never quite make a stance on anything. And they were the ones that in the 2010s were super Instagrammable. They were dominating the um, Christian music charts from like a worship perspective. Um, they were the ones who were on every single person's like worship set list. They were the, the tours, they were selling out stadiums. Like those were the people and it often pairs with the worship, right? Like a lot of those churches that were really popular in the 2010s were also the churches that had massive worship bands that were also really popular. Um, so yeah. And then the last thing we can get into a tiny bit is the money. We've talked about the fact that um, these mega pastors and these mega churches make absurd amounts of money. 
And um, like I said, I think that it all comes back to this being a really significant capitalistic machine. And you have capitalism really at the center. And I'm not trying to sound like super annoying and like the liberal girl that just got out of college kind of a thing. But like it really is, it's a business. It's a business. And it's a business that doesn't get taxed. So there's that. Um, But it's a business. And they're looking to sell the brand of Christianity. And so the way that that's done is you have these worship bands and you have the bands that then go out and make CDs and make records and go on streaming services and make a ton of money off of that. Because even once you become a band that is dominating in the Christian music sphere from a worship perspective, um, all of those other churches that are smaller that want to play your worship songs that worship team at that smaller church is going to go on Spotify and listen to that big mega church's worship band and listen to those songs because those are what's on their set list for the week. The amount of times that I would listen to these mega churches bands just because I was practicing for worship practice was unreal, right? And so they make money off of that. And then you've got the books. You've got, you know, Stephen Furtick has a book. Uh, Stephen Furtick has a lot of books. Um, Judah Smith has books. Um, obviously, like Rick Warren. And you've got um, John MacArthur has, like, books for days. Joel Olstein has books for days. Um, uh, Joyce, what's her face? What's her name? Um, Joyce Meyer. Joyce Meyer has books for days. Um, you've just got a lot of people who kind of, you know, who have – um, their hands in a lot of business ventures, if you will. Then podcasts came out and then you've got podcasts, um, being done by mega pastors and, um, you've got, uh, a, a select few who made it on reality TV shows, which that was a weird crossover event. And then you've got some of those pastors who are buddies with the Kardashians and buddies with Justin Bieber and buddies with, um, Chris Pratt and other celebrities, Sierra, Russell Wilson. And, um, essentially there are, it becomes this thing where they become incredibly Instagrammable, which also makes you money. And, um, it becomes a thing where these pastors are now celebrities. They're no longer, um, servants of the Lord. And here's the thing I've talked many times before, on my social media that I am not anti-religion. I am not anti-Christianity. Um, I am anti-Christianity when it makes the religion a business, when it is discriminatory, when it is harmful, and when it is abusive. And in my personal opinion, I think it is a great abuse of power to try to present yourself as a servant of the Lord and someone who's trying to do the Lord's work and then be making four million dollars. I think that that's just in itself contradictory and incredibly hypocritical. And then I also think that these mega churches, just like you can't have an ethical billionaire, I don't think you can have an ethical mega church. I just don't. That's a personal opinion. You don't have to agree with me. But honestly, if you're this far in the episode, you probably agree with me at some point or else you probably would have turned the episode off by now. Um, But I just think that you have these people And they've turned the church into a circus and they've turned it into a business. And I am no longer a religious person, right? But the one thing that it always reminds me of is the Jesus flipping tables. Because I think if Jesus walked into some of these mega churches, 
I think he would light the tables on fire. <laughs> um, and that's, that's not saying that Jesus is real or that any of this is real, but it is saying that if you're claiming to follow a certain set of principles, to follow a certain book where the main character of that book was someone who was other centered and wanted to serve and lived a very humble lifestyle. I think the idea of acting like you're modeling yourself off of that lifestyle and acting like you want to be like Jesus and really just manipulating and coercing people into giving you money and selling the whole thing as this like perfect little product when in reality you're just manufacturing all of it and you're manipulating all of it and you're in turn, um, shaming people and excluding people and discriminating against people. And then there's also obviously the whole other side of this that we don't even have time to get into right now, but you have these really powerful pastors and they get away with, they get away with a lot of stuff, right? Like we, we've seen a lot of controversies, a lot of scandals. We'll get into that a little bit tomorrow. Um, but I just think that it's, I think it's deceptive. And I think that at its core, it's unethical. That's my opinion. You don't have to agree with it. Um, but my goal was for 50 minutes for this episode and we're approaching that. So I'm going to, I'll end it here and we will pick up tomorrow with conferences, cults, and controversy. We'll get into some of the, the big time capitalism aspect of, of the conferences and the tours and all of that. And then we'll get into some of the cult-like stuff. We'll get into some of the brief purity culture, some of the um, we'll talk about the grave soaking because we all want to talk about it. Right. Um, and then we'll also get into some of the controversies. There's been a lot of scandals in mega churches over the last five years. Um, specifically over the last like two years, there's been like a ton of stuff that's come out. So we'll get into that a little bit cause it's all public record. Um, and yeah. And then in two weeks we will hit purity culture head on. Um, I know this is a little bit of a different format. Um, I haven't done one of these research episodes since like probably the body keeps the score, but this was something that was like highly requested from my audience. So I hope you guys enjoyed it. I'm so open to doing like a part three on this later in the year. So if you guys have more things you'd like me to cover that don't get covered tomorrow, please, please, please reach out to me, send me articles, send me resources, um, offer your experiences. Like, let me, let me know what you want to hear because I'm all for talking about this more. This has been a topic that I've wanted to cover for a long time. Um, so tomorrow we will cover those other three topics. It'll release at 6 a.m. PST. Um, and it'll just be like a normal episode. It'll just be an extra episode on Saturday. Um, the following Friday, we will not have an episode. We'll go back to bi-weekly. And then the third Friday, we will go into purity culture. Um, so that's kind of the, the view for this month. And then we will go back to bi-weekly permanently for the rest of the year. Um, and we'll go into some other topics that I have lined up. We've already recorded a ton of episodes for this year and they're all fantastic. So tune in tomorrow. And for today, that's all the time that we have. So thank you guys so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please rate us five stars on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also follow the blog on Instagram at Serafina blog and visit us online at serafinablog.com. And you can follow the podcast at Mindful Minds Podcast on TikTok and visit us online at mindfulmindspod.com. You can also follow my personal TikTok at Fina underscore underscore Bina, F-I-N-A underscore underscore B-I-N-A for more deconstruction content. And as always, to end our time, unclench your jaw, take a deep breath, and remember, you can always learn, you can always grow, and you can always choose to live your life in a more mindful way. I will chat with you guys tomorrow.